But as we look at our passage today, verses 42 to 49, we easily find that the future resurrection of the body, it's a mystery to our minds, isn't it? Trying to understand the concept of a resurrected body. And we have two options on the table when it comes to trying to understand the future resurrection. The first one is that we are to accept it by faith. Uh, This isn't a faith that's grounded on our own understanding or our own ability to understand everything that there is about the resurrection, but it's not a blind faith either. If anyone ever tells you that, that, that following Jesus, it's, it's just blind faith, uh, that's not true. In fact, I would dare to say that, that we should very seldom, if ever, have blind faith. You see, our faith in a future resurrection is not simply blind faith that you're just taking your foot out and, and taking a leap. No, our belief, our faith in the resurrection is not grounded on a whim or a hope But as Paul has already told us in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith in the future resurrection is grounded in a person, in Jesus Christ, and that he has risen from the dead. So our faith is not a blind faith at all. Our faith is a faith that looks solidly to Christ. That's option number one, to accept the resurrection by faith Grounded in the person and the resurrection of Jesus. But then option number two, and we see the sum of verse 12 of chapter 15, have taken this option. It is to reject the resurrection in disbelief. And this rejection of the resurrection has led the sum of verse 12 to ask the questions of verse 35. And Mike read the questions. In verse 35 it says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And as we talked about two weeks ago, these aren't honest, legitimate questions seeking to know truth. These are questions based in skepticism, trying to disprove not to truly seek truth. Well, Paul tells these people, as we saw two weeks ago, he calls them foolish in verse 36. In verse 34, he says that they have no knowledge of God. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, which of these two options concerning the resurrection are we going to take? Are we accepting it by faith, not a blind faith, but grounded in Christ's resurrection? And are we therefore going to live out of that faith, or are we going to reject it at worst, and at best, are we going to live like we are rejecting it? So for those of us that are followers of Christ in this room, we hold to Jesus' resurrection as the guarantee, or what scripture says, the first fruits of our resurrection. Our hope is in Christ. Death itself cannot diminish our hope. 
In fact, as Paul has told us, death is actually the grounds for us to experience this hope. So, if we are to live in the hope of the gospel, as we began to look at last week, truth number five regarding the hope of the gospel, the hope, this hope of the gospel, is an imperishable promise. It cannot be done away with. And while we cannot understand all that is entailed with our future resurrection, as we looked at two weeks ago in verses 35 to to 41, the idea of the resurrection, we don't understand it all, but it is not inconsistent with what we see even today in creation. Creation itself testifies to us that there is a future resurrection. And Paul, in verses 35 to 31, he reviews for us instances of nature. For instance, verses 36 to 38, what appears a lifeless seed is transformed into a marvelous, beautiful harvest. Those of you who are farmers or have farming background know experientially of the wonder of this miracle. In verses 39 to 41, Paul shows that God has made bodies according to different kinds, earthly bodies, heavenly bodies, and each of those bodies have a unique and wonderful glory that fits the purpose that God has designed for it. Whether it's the the uniqueness, the glory of an of an animal, of a uh, the highest of God's creation, a person, or the stars, or the moon, or the sun. How many of you looked out at the sky this past week or two, and you saw um, which other two planets that were together, Jupiter and was it Mars? Okay. Well, you saw two planets together. In fact, Nate, uh, Nate, Nate Fry and I were, were out doing some things on a Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, and we looked, and they, they almost looked like, is that a plane? Or a, is that two planets? Or is that a star, two stars? Or what is that? Those were the glories of those planets that we could see from millions of miles away. But they were showcasing the glory that God designed for them. Well, this morning, we're going to continue to investigate what Paul's saying, and we're going to turn our attention now to verses 42 to 49. And we're going to see that Paul brings us from talking in verses 35 to 41 about general truths of creation to specifically tying these general truths of creation down to show us the wonderful resurrection truths that we have in Christ. So as Christians, let us remember once again that we must cling to what truly matters. The gospel is a hope-filled message that produces hope-filled people, and we are going to see this morning the great hope that we have as we view our future resurrection. As we look at these resurrection truths, 
we're going to look at two specific resurrection truths that Paul brings out here. We're going to look at the truth of transformation that we, if we are Christians, will experience one day. No matter who you are, no matter what your situation is in life, no matter how terrible of a sinner you feel you are, if you are in Christ, this transformation is occurring and will occur. And then we're going to end it by looking at the second resurrection truth, that all of this is made possible because of our union to Jesus. So let's pray and, and we'll begin. Father, I ask for you to just be at work in our hearts. Lord, would the Holy Spirit be at work? Lord, would what we hear today, would what is proclaimed from your word today be yet another step in the Spirit's transformation process in our lives. Lord, right now we experience transformation of our, of our spiritual hearts, of our minds. And Lord, that's an up and down process, but you are at work within us. And one day, Lord, that transformation process will work its way outward even to our physical bodies. So, Lord, we're excited about that. We thank you for that. We look anticipatively for that. And, Lord, would you help us to live in the present moment in, in, uh, in light of this truth. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Resurrection truths. We're looking, first of all, at transformation. I want us to, 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 to look at verses 42 to 44 together. Here Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So I want to just stop right there uh, before we keep reading. And, and what Paul is doing, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So is what? Everything that he said in verses 35 to 41, basically. That a seed appears lifeless, yet it produces a transformed harvest. That there's different kinds of glories, there's different kinds of, of, of bodies that Christ creates for each uh, part of his creation. So Paul says, all right, you get that because you can see that. Now he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is now more specifically answering the objections that were raised in verse 35. Like, this makes no sense. So how is a dead corpse supposed to suddenly be up and walking and living? That appears ridiculous and gross. And Paul now is tying everything together. So let's look at this transformation that we see. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And notice these contrasts. What is sown perishable, uh, or what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Do you see these contrasts here? This is the transformation that Paul is talking about. And he's specifically using, in in each of these contrasts, the word sown. He's tying together what he talked about, a seed being sown in the ground. The seed that appears lifeless, of no use. So these mortal bodies are sown one way, but will be transformed. I want us to take a few moments to look at each of these contrasts. The first contrast that we see is that which is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. That word perishable, it means something that is subject to deterioration. Something that is subject to decay or corruption. We now, as, as, we, uh, as, as individuals die, we have the embalming process that, that greatly slows down that deterioration. But yet, mark it down, that body will deteriorate. Our bodies... As we see them, as we live in them, we are reminded on a consistent basis all too well just how perishable our bodies are. As I was looking over um, this passage, another example outside of the human body that, 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 that comes to my mind thinking about something that perishes, you think about perishable food items. You think about going to the grocery store and you see the beautiful apples. You see the, 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 the nice yellow, perfectly yellow, except if you go to Walmart, bananas. <laughs> you see all sorts of vegetables and fruit that look so fresh. And what happens if it's hanging around your counter too long? What once looked really good and really delicious is now disgusting. Isn't it the worst thing when you have like a tomato or something or an apple or or whatever it is, or you think of an orange and, and there's one that's like almost like burst because it's all watery and rotten, or you got an orange and it's growing all this white fungus all over it, and you're like, ugh. It's growing on some of the others. Or my personal uh, pet peeve is, is bananas that are brown and squishy. Uh, I, I love bananas, but I hate it when they start to rot. What was once so full of freshness is now something worthless. It's rotten. That's kind of what we see in our bodies. Think of yourself 20 years ago, depending on how old you are. (laughs) You're like, man, the pains, I'm starting to feel them more. Our bodies that were once so full of strength and vigor begin to slow down. What is sown is indeed perishable. And did you know that it's not just our own selves that are struggling with this? 
You see, we ourselves are, are, are not the only ones under the curse of sin. Creation itself is under the curse of sin. In Romans 8, for instance, verses 20 to 21, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, it didn't want to be, but because of him who subjected it, and that's God, because of Adam's sin, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, what's that word? Corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, creation itself is groaning under the subjection of the curse. And we know in Genesis 3, the earth began to spring forth thorns and thistles and weeds. And ever since that day, creation has been under the same groan that we experience. I mean, we see natural disasters. We see um, uh, just things declining. This is the result of the curse, a result of sin. And what if, if creation is to be personified as a person? You know what creation is looking forward to? According to the text, when the children of God are made new because it is then that creation itself will be made new see folks we are experiencing right now the perishable nature of our bodies of our minds the fragileness or the fragility of our emotions the stress that we carry with us every day it grinds on us. It wears us down. It is a burden to us. All of this screams out to us, perishable, perishable. That is what we are currently experiencing. But that which is sown, perishable, it says, is raised imperishable. If the word perishable means to be subject to deterioration or decay or corruption, what does imperishable mean? Not being subject to deterioration, to decay, or to corruption. Folks, we are experiencing the burdens of being perishable creatures emotionally, physically, uh, even, even spiritually we grow weary and that is not to be an end in itself that just discourages us. It is to point us to what is ultimately true in Christ. That we will be made imperishable. Verse 53 that we'll look at. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. But what's a second contrast here? Not simply perishable and imperishable, but it is sown, our body is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in what? In glory. What a contrast, being dishonored and experiencing glory. You, th you think of in athletic terms, being last in the race, and you hang your head, ho your, your, your head low in dishonor, 
or being disqualified to being first place and receiving the honor of the trophy or the medal. What a contrast from one spectrum to another. We experience the dishonor of a corrupted body. In fact, in, fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, the same word dishonor is translated as disgrace in that verse. And folks, because we are perishable, uh, we are living in perishable, perishable bodies, we are living in bodies sown in dishonor, in corruption. We are living in a world that is in the same situation, and we know even spiritually speaking, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, his work is, 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 is at work in this fallen world. Not only do we experience these descriptions physically in our bodies, but we experience these, these descriptions due to even the very affliction of serving Christ. Paul says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 4, he tells the church, when he makes a contrast between what they're going through and the pride of the Corinthian church, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute, or that same word, dishonor. How are they, experience, how are they experiencing all of these things? In chapter 4, uh, in the previous uh, verses there, or, or actually in verse 11, he follows, he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, it we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. If, if there's ever a description of dishonor, it's that. You see, we can look at, the, at, at, at our earthly bodies and we can look at the struggles we face and even the spiritual nature of living as aliens and strangers in this world. Of being rejected at work or being rejected in the school system or being rejected uh, and you name it. In all of that, we should be willing to endure because we know the glory and the honor that awaits us in Christ. From dishonor to being raised in glory. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Get this, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So do you see the foolishness to be living in a perishable body, in a body that's going to experience dishonor, disgrace, spiritually, physically? I mean, don't we, don't we end 
many times the same way we begin, where we need to be fed, we, we need to be completely taken care of. Even the most noble kings can end their life in the most seemingly dishonorable of ways because of death's curse. So are we going to strive for things that are also perishable, that are also dishonorable? When we know that if we are in Christ, we have been given that which is imperishable, that which truly is glorious, and then the third contrast, that which is sown in weakness yet raised in power, Paul said this concerning weaknesses. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Folks, we live as a result of the, of the fall in weakness on all levels. We experience individually that weakness in greater ways than others uh, in relation to other people. For some, there's an extreme struggle with weaknesses of health, physical health. For others, there's extreme weaknesses in mental health. For others, there are extreme weaknesses, and, and, and you name it, in relationships. For all of us, we experience the extreme weaknesses in our Christian life. Those weaknesses, it's like that whack-a-mole game. They pop themselves up in all of these different areas of our life. We think we have one thing uh, uh, under control, and then another thing pops up. That is all a result of living in a sinful world and being sinful creatures. And even if we're not actively, those things aren't a result of our active sin, we are still living in a broken world. But this weakness, like these other comparisons, are again to bring us to the one who is truly strong on our behalf. So we have to ask ourselves, is my weaknesses, or are my weaknesses, is the dishonor I experience, is the perishable nature of my life, are these things pointing me to Christ, or are they pointing me deeper within myself? Because we know that that weakness will be turned to power. Don't we see that power even right now? As we see, as Paul says, you know, he begged the Lord three times for whatever that thorn was to be removed. And God's answer was a gentle no. But he says, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. Paul says, when I am weak, 
He is strong. Therefore, Paul's conclusion is not, I'm going to get mad at God. I'm going to get bitter at God. I'm just going to be, live in disappointment with God. No, he says, I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of God should rest upon me. Folks, if we are following Jesus, if we are living for him, if we are coming to him with these burdens, we can experience the power of God at work in us right now, and that's just a taste of what we will experience one day in eternity. Are we living with eternity in view? But then there's one final comparison here, and it's in the beginning, or it's at the end of verse uh, or beginning of verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. This may be maybe the most confusing uh, on a surface level to understand. In this comparison, the natural body, you could even translate this the soulish body or the material body. We have to understand two things with this comparison. First of all, The natural body is the body of the present creation. And the spiritual body is the body of the new creation. So two different types of bodies. That which is a natural body that we are living in right now, you, can, you all can move your fingers and your toes and your arms. This is the natural body that we're living in. But what is sown a natural body is going to become, it's going to be transformed into a spiritual body. Now the second thing we have to understand is that this is not a physical versus a spiritual body in the sense of it's not tangible, it's not flesh and blood. It's talking about that which is a corrupt body under Adam Versus a body made alive and empowered by the Spirit of God. And we're going to talk more about that. So we're not talking about a physical body that we have now, and one day that physical body is just going to be a spirit. No, we're talking about two very physical bodies, but yet two very different bodies. No less different than what Paul talks about different kinds, different glories. I like what one individual said. Uh, This is not on the overhead, so just listen with me. The natural body, then, is what all people possess upon entering the world as sons and daughters of Adam. When new life in Christ comes for believers, they receive the Holy Spirit but they do not immediately receive a spiritual body. They will not be given a spiritual body until the end. And we're going to look at that in verses 50 to 58 in the following weeks. So verse 44 then says, If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So if, there's going to, if there is one, the other will also be coming. Two different kinds, two different types of glory. One that is fitted for this old creation that is under the dominance of sin, 
and one that is fitted and will be fitted for the new creation where there is no more sin. So we see here in just a glimpse the transformation that awaits us. Are you excited for that transformation? Not just, maybe, maybe you're older here today and you're thinking of a perishable dishonor. You're thinking of all these things and you're thinking um, specifically even the physical feelings and perishable nature of the physical. Maybe you're younger here and you're not experiencing that physically yet. You will, but not yet. But this is true across the board. Like I said, no matter if it's, if it's physical, if it's emotional, if it's spiritual, we are experiencing this on every single level of our being. Now, how is this transformation made possible? Well, we're going to see not only the reality of the resurrection is grounded in transformation. Don't compare what you see now with what will be. But it's grounded in our union with Christ. And I think this is the most glorious truth of all. Because we are united with Christ at the moment of salvation. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And that, tra- that, that, that union with Christ is only going to grow in its manifestation. See, verses 45 to 46 show us that we are given new creation life through Christ. In verse 45, it says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. You see, the first Adam was given life. You know Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So Adam was given life. But what about this other Adam, the last Adam? He was not given life. He actually gives life. The end of verse 45, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Paul has already contrasted the first Adam with Christ earlier in this passage, in verses 20 to 23. He does so again, he brings it full circle. When it says that, that that, that the last Adam gives life, What did Jesus promise upon his resurrection and his return to heaven? That he would give the Holy Spirit. You see, the resurrected Christ, he gives the Spirit of God to dwell in us. And you know what Romans 8 verse 11 says? It says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. How are we raised from the dead? It is through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. 
No wonder that in Ephesians, Paul says that the Spirit, He is the the guarantee of our future inheritance. The Holy Spirit is living within us, has given us new spiritual life. And one day, that same power of the Holy Spirit will give us new bodies. Right now, what we experience is new life in our souls. And one day, that new life in our souls is met with new bodies. Verse 46 continues and says, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. We see here the creation order, that it is the old creation, that which is in sin, and Jesus has come to do what? To bring about a new creation. It's Adam and then Christ, so therefore it is the natural and then the spiritual. It is the old creation body and then the new creation body. So can I stop right here and can I ask you this morning, are you living in dependency upon this new Adam? Jesus Christ. You see, when we want to go our own ways, when we want to follow the course and the culture of this world, what we are doing is we are saying, I am no longer living in light of that which is imperishable, full of glory, that which is is honorable. I am settling for all of these perishable, gone-with-the-wind type things. And folks, it's no wonder that we're miserable if we truly are Christians and are doing that because the Spirit of God that is the, that is the guarantee for all of these wonderful things to happen, He is not going to let you and I rest doing that. If we are guaranteed this, he is not going to let us go this way for very long. And we will be miserable in the process. Does our hope need to be redirected to experience then the true peace that passes understanding? The true uh, reliance on our rock and our fortress who is God and God alone? Are we living as if we were still under the old Adam? But for time, we must move on. See, verses 45 to 46 show us that we are given new creation life through, through Jesus. And verses 47 to 49 show us the glorious reality that we bear and are to be bearing the image of What this text calls the image of the man of heaven. You may say, I don't understand what that is, Adam. We're going to look at that. In verse 47, let's continue reading. It says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. But let's look at this contrast. The second man is from heaven. So here Paul gives us a contrast of two representatives. I mean, do you see how Paul's making contrast all over the place here in this passage? 
This is a further description, not only of these representatives, but of what is characteristic of these representatives, the natural body versus the spiritual body. For the first man, the first Adam, he's characterized as being a man of dust. Again, Genesis 2-7, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. Genesis 3-19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How many of you have ever picked up a, an old book and it's full of dust? What do you do with that dust? You just go like that, and it's gone, right? It's worthless. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Or you say, you know, it's been a while since we dusted, so we get out that feather duster or whatever it is, and you start swooshing it around. Just here in a moment, gone in a moment. When Paul reminds us that the first Adam and the first Adam's body, he is a man of dust. He is not... Remind, just reminding us that God formed man from the dust of the ground. But he's reminding us of the destiny of those who are in Adam. That this is complete perishableness, complete dishonor. What Adam has led into the world in rebelling against God all who are under the dominion of, of, and the, the represent, representation of the first Adam and only has the hope of this natural body is of most people, of what Paul says, to be pitied. But then there's the second man, and he's a man of heaven. He's a man of that which is eternal. Verse 48 not only contrasts these two representatives, but these two people groups. Now he makes it personal. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So there's two people groups here. Again, those who are under Adam, those who are under Christ. Now, in one sense, we are all under Adam in the sense that we come from Adam, that these bodies are still under the effects of the fall, that we will, our earthly bodies, will one day return to dust. But in a larger sense, we are no longer described as this uh, man, as men and women of Adam, of people of the dust, because we have a greater hope that now we have been united to Jesus. In fact, in 1 John 3, 2, read this verse silently along with me. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now, even though we still are under the effects of the old Adam, right now we are God's children. Present, now future, 
and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, that's Jesus, as he is. Now we go back to the present. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Folks, we have hope not simply for the, for the future. We have hope for the present. We are God's children now. We know that ultimate transformation will one day come, and that is what motivates us to live for Christ today. You see, we too are to be a heavenly people characterized by the new creation. And that leads us in conclusion to verse 49. Look at the precious promise that we've been given. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What we see here is we see a past perspective and a future perspective. Before we came to Christ we bore the image of the man of dust. That's Adam. And just like dust is here today, gone tomorrow, so we were under the dominion of futility. And we have a hope that is really of no hope at all because no matter how much man prospers, all of that will come to an end. But then we go to the future. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What this is doing, Paul, Paul is talking from one spectrum to the other. He's, uh, now even today, just as the passage we read in 1 John, even now we are children of God. Remember that already, not yet. We are already bearing the image of the man of heaven, and we are to do so in a broken world. But one day, that will be finally and perfectly completed. The work of our redemption will be done. You ever wonder why you struggle with sin? You ever wonder why you're up one day and down the next? It's because the battle has ultimately been won, but we're still in the battle. Paul's looking at the final Completion of everything. We will bear fully, you could, you could add there, the image of the man of heaven. Paul writes to this same Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians concerning this present and future hope. And he says there, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. Sometimes discouraged, it's discouraging to see, you know what? I'm not being transformed at the pace that I would like. I'm not being transformed. It hasn't been as easy a process of transformation as I would wish. 
But we can rest assured that if we are united to Christ, if His Spirit is within us, we are being transformed. From one degree of glory, this process, to the final degree of glory in heaven. In the heaven coming to earth, the new creation, forever with God. Folks, this is resurrection hope. This is resurrection reality. No man can conceive fully of the hope that awaits us. Maybe this morning you say to yourself, you know what? I don't feel anyone truly knows what I'm going through. I don't think anyone truly knows what I've been through. Well, I'll tell you, there is at least one And that's God. And along with those things that you feel nobody knows that you have been through and you don't even fully understand yourself, if you are a believer today, you need to rest in the reality that God is an infinite God. His ways are above our ways. And just like we can't fully comprehend the things we have gone through, are going through, even will go through, neither can we comprehend the glories that await us. And I would say, we're the better for that exchange. Would you not? 